0: welcome to day 159 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 13 and then Acts chapter 4 verses verse 23 through chapter 5 verse 11. Okay, beginning in Second Samuel 13. Uh, this continues the story of things not going great for David. Um, in the aftermath of uh, David's sin with Bathsheba and of uh, of course, the, uh, the killing of her husband, Uriah, um, we saw that God, although he has forgiven David, there are still going to be uh, consequences, I suppose you could say, but not exactly the kind of uh, just natural course of things that follows from bad, sinful decisions that we make that we sometimes mean by consequences. I mean, the things that are happening that are going to happen in David's life a lot of it is um, things that the Lord brings upon him uh, as part of uh, divine chastisement, punishment, uh, in fact, for for what he has done. Um, you recall that yesterday in chapter 12, verse 11, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And it talks about, I will take your wives uh, from you and um, he will lay with them in the sight of all Israel and the sun. And this is really the beginning of that starting to happen. So David's sin with Bathsheba um, marks a kind of turning point downward in David's rule. Uh, Things don't end up terrible. They don't end up horrible. He does repent. And it's not like God revokes the covenant or anything, the Davidic covenant. um, But we're going to continue to see things that kind of stem out from what he has done. And so what happens here is we're introduced to a couple of his, David's children, and he has a bunch of different wives, David does. And the first one is Shalom. And uh, Shalom, his mother, we found out back in 2 Samuel 3, um, is, her name is Ma'aka, and she's the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. So, Geshur is one of these Aramean city-states that I've been telling you about. Um, This one is located uh, kind of between Bashan and Hermon. And so, David marries this woman, which it's almost certainly some kind of marriage alliance. And um, this is the son that is born to her. And he has a beautiful uh, full sister whose name is Tamar. This is the same name as judah's wife from genesis chapter 38 but of course a different woman and <clears throat> then they have a half-brother named amnon and amnon is a, is the son of david through achinoam of jezreel this is uh second samuel 3 as well where we hear about all of these um the, there was also i want to note a a wife of saul uh whose name was achinoam but uh, it's not clear at all that this is the same woman. Uh, so I mentioned the other day that, uh, that w- we can't be sure of, of, of David having married any of Saul's actual wives, and certainly we don't, we don't know about that um, for certain. And even if he did, it would have been after, after Saul was deceased. Um, so these are the main characters, Avshalom and his full sister Tamar and their half-brother Amnon and Amnon is in love with Tamar. And he's so, tor- he's so tormented by that that he makes himself ill, because, of course, as we know from uh, uh, passages in the Torah, like Leviticus eighteen nine and 11, and chapter 20, verse 17, that this kind—even with a half-sister, um, any kind of relations, let alone marriage, uh, is going to be strictly forbidden with, with people who are of such close kin— so, she's he's in love with her, but she's out of his reach, uh, perhaps uninterested in him, but definitely it's, it's against the law of Moses for that. Uh, by the way, I've got my daughter Katie in here, so if you hear anything in the background, uh, you know the routine, that's her. Um, so, these are the three characters. Um, Tamar, we're told, is a virgin, she is unwed, and so Amnon is... Bummed out about that, but he's got a friend whose name is Yona and Yona Dov is um, also a relative. He is—he would have been David's nephew, so a cousin to all these folks, and uh, he's described as being very crafty. Crafty—the <laughs> word is actually chakam, which in other contexts means wise, and there is a. Um, connection sometimes in some of these biblical terms between craftiness and wisdom. Um, so chakam is the normal word for 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 uh, wise. Um, and uh, but you might also recall in Genesis chapter three when the serpent's introduced, he's called a room, which is also crafty, but can also mean something like wise. I think back then I described it as like street wise. You know your way around. And so Yonadav is described as very crafty. And he gets the idea as to how he might be able to get with his half-sister, which is, of course, not a great thing, <laughs> right? Like, this is not something uh, that uh, a godly person wants to be advising his, his friend about how to do. And his grand plan is lay on your bed and pretend to be sick. And then when your father sees that you're sick— uh, request that Tamar come to take care of you, and particularly to feed him, to give him bread to eat. And so that happens, and and Amnon requests Tamar, and David goes and tells her to go to her brother, actually her half-brother's house, to prepare the food. So she goes, uh, she takes dough, she kneads it, she makes cakes, and he refuses to eat. And then uh, Amnon starts to go beyond what um, Yonadov had suggested, and he sends all of his servants out from him, so it's just the two of them, and then tells her to to bring him the food, uh, it says, into the chamber, which, so she was apparently a little bit at a distance, but into the same room that, that he is in. And so she does that, and when he, uh, when they're alone and she's close, he takes her and says this, like, this horrendous come lie with me, my sister. And she she protests and her words are, No, brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Of course, that's alluding to those those commandments in Leviticus that this is I mean, not only are they not married, not only would this be adultery, but you're also, again, Uh, This is too close of a familiar relationship for something like this to to, to be able to happen. So this uh, such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. So she's essentially begging him. And then she says, as for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you'd be one of the outrageous fools in in Israel. So that's her second appeal. So not only is this thing a taboo to do, but think about um, I would be covered with shame over it and you would be, just known as this jerk throughout the land, this 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 foolish, uh, perhaps a worthy, a worthless fellow. Um, and then she hatches. She suggests to him, uh, "Please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from from you." Uh, now, uh, it's uh, unclear as to how we're to take that last thing. Are we um, are we supposed to think that um, that that she thinks that David would be okay with this? Or is she just trying to say whatever she can to get out of the situation in the moment? We're not told, um, but he, nevertheless, he doesn't listen to her, and it says being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. So he forces himself and rapes his sister, and then um, to compound this, to even go to even make things worse, it says he no longer loved her, right? It says he, instead he hated her with a very great hatred. And it says so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her, which is just, uh, you know, he's just this despicable guy. There's nothing positive to say about him. And and then he kicks her out and uh, she protests because now that this has happened, cutting me loose and just kicking me out. She says, this wrong in sending me away would be greater than the other one that you did to me. Um, she would be violated. It would be known. Um, she, you, now that you've done this thing, you're just going to turn me out, um, onto the street as it were. And um, and then the he he calls in the his one of his servants and has him has her physically removed and the door bolted after her, kind of just to seal that with like a, a dramatic end there, and then and then her clothing is described. It, it says that she was wearing a low a long robe with sleeves because this is how the virgin daughters of the king, the Prince David's princess daughters. Uh, dressed. This, by the way, is um, the the other place such a garment is described is in the Joseph narrative. This is a ketonet pasim, um, as I noted then, um, probably mistranslated a coat of many colors. It's probably a long sleeved garment. It means you don't do work, right? You you are upper class. here, and you can see why his brothers would have been angered by him. But this is what the virgin daughters of the king would wear. And she goes and she puts ash on her head, and um, and and tears her her garment, and cries aloud wherever she goes. Uh, so she's basically devastated by this, and understandably so. And Avshalom, her brother, comes to her, and um, and uh, tells her, "Hold your peace," and brings her into his house so that she lives there. As it says, a desolate woman, a woman. It's not like she can be married to some prince somewhere or something like that. Um, uh, no, she she now is going to live in in her brother's house and live out the rest of her days there. And David hears these things, and although it says he's very angry, he essentially does nothing about it. And this, of course, has serious overtones with the story of Dinah from Genesis chapter thirty four, where. Um, she, where Dinah, Jacob's daughter, is raped by the, um, uh, the by the the ruler's son from the city of Shechem, and he does nothing about it. In fact, he's talking about giving her in marriage to the guy, and because he does nothing about it, the brothers take matters into his own, their own hands. Simeon and Levi do, and things go south that way. And that's kind of exactly what happens here. Abshalom waits two full years, and then he um, he hatch, hatches this plot where it's time for him to shear his sheep, and this is, a, of course, a big deal. This is another connection with those stories in Genesis, right? The connection in, in terms of the plot to Genesis 34, and then in terms of the name Tamar in Genesis chapter 38, you recall that sheep shearing was uh, when this When that whole thing disaster went down, but um, he invites his his family to all participate in this because this is, of course, you know a a a, a joyous event, something that would have been celebrated. So he invites, he asks his father to send all of his brothers and sisters, the whole family, and David's like, "Ah, we don't want to be a burden to you, and uh, and then he's like, well, at least let my brother Amnon go, and. Uh, for reasons that are not entirely clear David decides you know what I'll let all the why don't all the sons why don't all my kids go with you perhaps there's something in the background that he doesn't entirely trust Av Shalom and um wants to make sure that um he's not alone with amnon um, but is trying to hold this 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 unstable peace within his family and um so Ab Shalom then, he now he doesn't do it himself, but he tells his servants. Once Amnon is drunk, um, I'll tell I'll give you the the command, and I want you to kill him. And in case you're worried that these are the king, this is the king's son. Don't fear. Have I not commanded you? And so this exactly this is exactly what happens. Uh, and the the servants of Absalom Av, kill Amnon. And as soon as this happens, all the other uh, all, all his brothers, all the king's sons, uh, each mount his own mule and and flee from it so they they get out of there. Now the news that initially reaches David is that uh, Shalom has killed all of the king's sons. Um, but then um, and and he enters into obvious obvious serious mourning. He tears his garments and lays on the earth, it says. Uh, but then appears Yonadav again. And he clarifies, um, let not my, and remember he's Amnon's friend. So he's, he's kind of on the side of the guy who just got killed. He's the one, and you know, the, the decision to actually rape Tamar is, appears to have, have been Amnon's alone, but here Yonadav is, um, is there and, uh, he clarifies thing only Amnon alone is dead. And, um, he tells, and he tells, um, David that exactly what happened by the command of Shalom, This has been determined from the day that he violated his sister. So he's had it out for him ever since this happened uh, with Tamar and um, seeks to comfort David this way. It's a small comfort, but it is comfort to know that just one of your sons is dead, I suppose, rather than all of them. And so uh, the king's Sons eventually uh, arrive at Jerusalem, and Yonadav is there uh, to tell David, and as, as soon as um, they see each other, they all start weeping, and um, all of the servants of David are weeping as well. Meanwhile, Avshalom goes and flees to his grandfather, uh, Talmai, the son of Emahud, king of Geshur, and um, David is mourning and uh, Absalom, however, remains in Geshur three years, and you can imagine the situation that that puts Talmai in. Uh, from everything we can tell, he would have been in a subservient relationship to David, and so having your grandson, who just mer- who just murdered, who is a son of the king, but <coughs> just murdered another one of the king's sons, um, giving him safe harbor there, is uh, obviously uh, puts puts that guy in a difficult position you know, with David. And um, the, the final verse of the day is actually a little bit of a tricky verse um, because the tra- it, uh, translation-wise, it's very difficult to know how to take that first clause. Um, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Av Shalom. It's probably not worth me explaining the ins and outs of the issues here, um, but I do think that, you know, the way the ESV translates it is Fair enough. The spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So, David, we've seen like when his child died as a result of his sin with Bathsheba, um, <clears throat> he has this time of mourning, but then, like, once it's happened, he's <clears throat> kind of like forward looking, right? Like, that's so it's when the child dies that he puts his robes back on and is willing to eat and stuff like that. Um, here, perhaps the same idea, uh, because Amnon is dead, he allows himself to be comforted about him um, and and now wants to mend things with Avshalom. So, that's apparently what's going on, um, <clears throat> and yeah, again, but again, that verse is a bit of a tricky one. Okay, let's go over to Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through chapter 5, verse 11. So, uh, Peter and John, as we saw yesterday, were had been arrested uh, by the Jewish rulers or taken in by them at least and um, the who are themselves kind of uh, dumbfounded as to what they can do because uh, the the instigating event was that Peter healed a man who had been lame from birth and they um, and had took the opportunity to preach the gospel about Jesus uh, many people believed as a result but then, um uh the, you know the obviously the Jewish establishment is not happy about that so they bring them in and they're like well we it's not like we can deny that um a, a great miracle has taken place but we don't want them speaking anymore in this name uh so let's just order them not to speak and their response is basically like we're going to do what god wants us to not what you want us to do and so they release them and that's where we catch up with uh, Peter and John today, going back and reporting to their uh, their friends, the other believers, what had happened to them. And what's noteworthy about this is that this is really the first um, kind of official sign of opposition to the early Jesus movement that we've seen. Okay, so the idea that they're not just going to be able to go about, uh, you know, preaching and the apostles working signs and it's just smooth sailing from here on out, that's kind of out the window now, that now they're aware that the, the men who killed Jesus are now turning their sights on these early Christians. And rather than praying for, you know— um well, rather than, than than getting all upset about it and just praying for deliverance, keep us safe and things, their prayer is actually pretty amazing. They lift their voice together, so they're they're of one mind here. Um, and they they pray sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, now just as an aside, notice. What that, uh, what phrases like this kind of contribute to our, uh, let's say, doctrine of the scripture, how the Bible views the Bible. Okay, so here is David writing a psalm, and it's saying that this is God speaking um, through the mouth of David by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this idea that in scripture we have God's words in human words is very much reinforced with statements like this. And then they quote Psalm 2. What this is this is um, the first messianic psalm that we get in the in the psalter, and uh, this is the one where my um, where uh, God says to the king, "Today I have begotten you." Um, yeah, fabulous psalm, worth reading again if you haven't seen it in a while. But it begins with the nations rising up against the Lord and against His anointed, His Messiah. So think about how this kind of dovetails with the situation, right? The the first taste of opposition from the same people who killed Jesus. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Think about how appropriate that is for everything from how things ended up with Jesus to how they are now for them, right? You have these, the peoples rising up um, and the, the powerful setting themselves against God and against his Messiah. And then it goes and it, it, it describes exactly that, right? It says, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, okay, he is your Messiah, Um, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So they're applying, interestingly, right, in Psalm 2, the Gentiles are raging, okay, that's easy, Pontius Pilate, okay, the the soldiers, uh, the Romans, right, and the peoples. Now, if you're a Jewish person reading Psalm two, you would hear that and think those are and say, okay, synonymous, Gentiles and peoples, right? These are the these are the other nations. But here the peoples are 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 uh, are reapplied. That phrase is is now pointed at the Jewish leadership, the, the peoples of Israel. Uh, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. So notice these, these themes arising. Number one, you've got persecution happening against Jesus, God's, who is God's anointed, um, and, uh, and now they, they haven't gotten to the church yet. Um, but you also have the theme of God's sovereignty. This is not something that's happening outside of your control. Right. They they begin the prayer, first of all, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Right. Like you're the one who rules over everything. And the things that they've done now in verse 28 is whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is now the second time that the apostles are speaking like this in Acts, the first time being in chapter 2, verse 23, which is Peter's sermon on th- at uh, the day of Pentecost. And look at this. This again, we have this balance of human responsibility, human beings acting out of sinful motives to do genuine evil, and yet it's within the sovereign... Um, direction of God. It is God carrying out through them, through their sinful actions, what he has predestined to take place. And both of these are true, right? Both They are compatible with one another. This position is called compatibilism. That is when we talk about how human free will and God's um, causation of events are compatible, right? It doesn't mean you don't have to choose one or the other. We don't know exactly how that works, and we don't have to. What we know is that the Bible affirms both of these things to the extent that, that we are we are free enough to be culpable for our actions, and God is sovereign enough to be praiseworthy for the good that he does, and even through the evil of human beings, he is working good. So then they say, now, Lord, look upon their threats Okay. And it doesn't say and zap them, right? This does not turn into an imprecatory psalm or something like that. Uh, right, like the Lord, take care of my enemies and may they be put to shame, or any, although that would be a biblical prayer. Okay. No, look upon their threats and grant them us boldness grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness look at how mission centered they are like they're not even praying that more of this doesn't happen to them what they want is to is to be better at sharing the gospel in the midst of all this help us to be courageous help us to be bold while you continue to do what you've been doing while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Remember, remember, that was kind of the the issue with the instigating event. This guy was healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and, work, rise and walk. And then, you know, they're like, let it be known to you that it was in the name of Jesus that we did this. And then they're like, no longer speak in this name, but here, the wonders and signs, let them continue to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And uh, then when they pray, uh, the Spirit fills them even more. It says they were all filled with the Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. And uh, this, by the way, I think is also helpful in our understanding of the Holy Spirit, um, where we certainly want to maintain that when when believers uh, come to faith in Christ, when people come to faith in Christ, they are uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit but i don't think that that, nece- that that's uh does I, I don't think that that means that there's that's always the most measure of the spirit that we can ever have right no i think that that filling can be that filling although it is permanent right the spirit indwells believers permanently at the moment of of conversion that we can become more or less filled with the holy spirit right where where the spirit has more or less influence on us uh, not that we ever lose it as 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 believers who hold fast through our confession in Christ, but um, but it does seem in some place, certain places that um, believers can be filled with with the Spirit even more so, or filled by the Spirit. Actually, we might want to say in some places, um, but that's beyond uh, the scope of what we're talking about today. Um, and uh then we get another one of these summaries of the church. so um the the there's tremendous unity, the full number of those who believed are of one heart and soul. And then we hear about this kind of communal living where they're all taking care of one another's needs, even to the extent of selling what they had so that they can uh, take care of one another's needs. And it's within this that the next event happens where, um, Bar- this guy named Barnabas, who will become a major player in the book of Acts, he's actually the guy that kind of hooks up Paul with the apostles, uh, later on. Um, and his name means son of encouragement, good name. <laughs> um, so Barnabas gets this idea to sell a field that belongs to him and brings the money, uh, to the apostles and to do, and does this. And so this becomes, uh, apparently, a thing, or at least something that inspires another couple to do something similar, and this is Ananias and Sapphira. Now, they also sell a piece of property, and um, and it makes clear uh, that Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, keeps back some of the proceeds and, and only brings some of them and lays them at the apostles' feet. And um, Peter chews him out for this. So apparently the Spirit gives Peter insight into this. Um, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Um, All right, a couple things about this. Number one, notice again, uh, this speaks to the idea of moral culpability once again. And we've seen this with some of the characters in the gospel that Satan fills... People or Satan influences people, and yet the people are still responsible for what they do. Um, uh, so, um, uh, in, in fact, um, the, Peter even goes on to say in verse 4, you have contrived this deed in your heart, right? So, where Satan, you know, Satan's activity... Uh, begins and Ananias ends, we can't be sure. But what we do know is that even under the influence of Satan, Ananias is still acting in a way in which he is personally uh, morally responsible. The second thing I want to say about this is the thing that they do wrong is probably not that they didn't bring all of what they made from the sale of this land. It's probably that they lied about it. Um, uh, which is not, ex- it's not explicitly said like what they said as they brought it forward, but notice that both in verse three and verse four, um, Peter says that they lied, right? And then later on in just a few verses, when, the, when Sapphira is being confronted about this, um, uh, he says, um, uh, uh, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much, right? And that's Essentially, essentially would be the lying part. So it's not like they're on the hook here just because they didn't give everything, right, or only gave half or something like that. They're on the they're on the hook because they lied about it because they wanted to be thought well of, and um and and gave a certain portion and and lied so that the church would think the that of them. It, as awesome people, just like they thought of Barnabas, as if the, the church wouldn't have appreciated it. But again, another angle would be as if it even matters what people think of you, right? Because you're supposed to be doing this for God. And um, in both Ananias and his wife's case, they both uh, separately, but just um, three hours apart, are 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 killed. God, um, God, they both fall down dead as a result of this, and great fear came upon the church. Now, um, this, of course, is an extraordinary act of God. Uh, Many of us have done things that are worse than this, that are far worse than this, but, um, uh, you know, a couple things. Number one, whenever we have difficulty with death in in Scripture, especially when God is is, um, attached as some kind of cause of the death, like we saw this with David's child the other, um, the other day. Um, whenever that happens, it's important to remind ourselves that God is in control of all death. And if God is sovereign over all of, all that happens, um, and scripture does specifically tell us, I kill and make alive, right? Um, if we can make peace with that, then it's hard to see how this would be, present itself as a, as a specific, uh, as a particularly difficult thing, the only difference here is that we see specifically the sin that is attached to that. But again, we all believe—at least most of us probably, you know—probably know this verse that the wages of sin is death. Okay, and so the fact that someone dies because of sin should not be surprising to us. That doesn't mean that we can go out and when we see people dying and be like, oh, I bet they died because of this sin. No, we're given insight here in the scriptures. We're not given that kind of insight into other specific situations or things like that. Um, But God does not wrong us when he allows us to die. You can think of it this way. Like, let's say these guys are, I don't know, 20 years old, right? If you heard about a 20-year-old married couple in a church who died you would be sad, you would grieve, but it wouldn't be like, I can't believe that God could do this. I mean, that sometimes is the, the, you know, the emotional response. But, you know, most people kind of taking a few steps back understand, you know, that the Lord gives life and the Lord takes away and we don't always understand. Uh, But here we do, we are given insight as to why it happened. And uh, I think, you know, part of that, probably involves the fact that here the church of Jesus Christ is being established, and God is making it very clear that it is not okay to use the church for Personal aggrandizement for personal for enriching oneself for gaining status—that is not what it's for. The church is to be a place of honesty and integrity and sacrificial giving and transparency. That is what the church is to be. And by making it very clear that God does not tolerate sin, He is teaching His people here that look, we're not playing around. We're not playing games. I don't tolerate sin. I don't want you to either. And not like it's ever our call that someone should die or something for a sin, but us knowing that God takes our sin very seriously um, teaches us that the church, although a hospital of grace for, for lost and sick sinners, um, is nevertheless to be holy. And it is something that God cares very much about, our righteousness and our holiness. And with that we are done for today. So I thank you for being with me. As always, I look to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.